0: My day is my own. My business is something that I really love to do too in a field that I'm passionate about. But I feel like just that autonomy of running your own business, I could be selling just about anything and probably feel largely the same way. Just that freedom is worth it.
1: So here's the thing. Sometimes our prep work for these shows, whether that's speaking with our guests, doing production meetings, fooling around with music and joking with each other, is as much fun as actually recording them. And that was definitely the case with today's guest, who is a gifted musician and entrepreneur. So I thought we might start off with just a little bit of backstory. So I first met Sam Brown in April at our private members group in Austin, Texas. So Sam is based in New Zealand, quite a long way away, and was the beneficiary of one of the sort of scholarships or gift tickets that established Dynamite Circle members offer to newer members of the community as a sort of way to like pay it forward and encourage them and to extend a friendly welcome to them to the community. So typically they'll gift flights or tickets to the event or sort of like an intro phone call where they can share expertise and stuff like that. So, just like me, Sam turned up to our Get to Know You meetup. And when he described his business, which is a band booking agency, it sounded interesting and he was really cool to talk to. So, fast forward six months, he sent Ian and I an email saying that coming to the event in Austin had not only prompted him to dream bigger, but that he'd acted on it. And I just had to drag him on the show to share his story. I think you guys will find it inspiring. And because he's a talented musician, we're going to ruthlessly take advantage of that fact. And use some of Sam's music as tracks for this week's episode and a lot more on the musician stuff later. But check this out.
0: My name is Sam Brown, and my business is called Find a Band. And it's a live band booking agency. So clients come to my website, they search by genre. And location and they're presented with live bands and musicians that fit those filters and then they request a quote for those artists and from there we will communicate with the client the way it makes money is there's a commission on the booking who uses this site we mainly focus on corporate clients so businesses of say 200 plus staff having a gala dinner or an awards night or something like that, or an end-of-year party. So we're really flat-out busy right now as businesses wrap up for Christmas. And then we also do a lot of weddings as well. When I started the business, I thought that I would be providing weekly entertainment for bars and that I'd kind of build up like a portfolio of bars. But I quickly learned in the first year or two that they were all of the trouble and none of the reward. There were a lot of pain for very little reward. And then corporates are the opposite. There are a few emails back and forth and a big payoff. I started it 10 years ago and I was not really seeking to make a name for myself as an entrepreneur. I was in a job, in a corporate job working for Yahoo, in fact, that had just come to New Zealand a year or two earlier. And I sort of had... Gone out and bought my suit, and I had my cubicle and I had my Dell computer, I guess. (laughs) I can remember the highlight of my day was I would go across the street and buy a muffin. (laughs) I was like, that's no way to live. So I started Find a Band. My goal was to create an income for myself that allowed me to write songs and record albums to become a musician. And I realized that I had this kind of dichotomy of, go to work all day and then get home exhausted, but have an income or be a musician and not have any money to do anything. You know, this is in 2000. I think I started doing it in 2007 and got it live in 2008. And I had, when I say no clue, I had no clue. I wasn't reading blogs. I wasn't listening to podcasts. Sam, working at Yahoo doesn't sound that bad. No. And that was the thing. I didn't know the phrase golden handcuffs at the time, but it was definitely that. So I doubled my income from my previous job, which was working in a music magazine, which I actually liked a lot more, but they offered me a big salary and I took it. And it wasn't so bad. It was fine, but it was I didn't care whatsoever about the outcome. I was part of a sales team where they measured the success or failure of the sales by the entire team. I think there were six of us, say, and it was inconsequential whether I did no work or I worked hard all day and yeah, I lasted a very short amount of time there actually. I don't know if I mentioned this to you in my notes or whatever, but I actually went on a game show.
1: Now we're talking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I won some money. I won ten thousand dollars, New Zealand, which would be about say six thousand US today, something like that. I'd already been saving money with a view to starting my agency. And that was kind of like it wasn't literally as immediate as the next day, but within say two or three weeks of that, I was out of my job and doing my business full time
1: so it was the game show that got you onto the business full time Well, it helped. I'd
0: stumbled into this fact that I could buy guitars out of Japan <laughs> and sell them in New Zealand and make like five or six hundred dollars a time and I just did that outside of work as my sort of side hustle, I guess you'd call it, and I must have done it twenty guitars. I would keep the best ones for myself. I still have one of those guitars, a really good one. But anyway, most of them I sold to like 50-year-old property guys usually who had more money than they knew what to do with and they'd buy these fancy guitars. So I think I was already kind of on track to start anyway, but it definitely didn't hurt that all of a sudden there was this nice little windfall.
1: What was your threshold? like? How did you think about it at the time in terms of how much you needed to earn in order to go full-time on the agency?
0: There was no crossover period. I think if I had read a lot of the stuff I've read now and communicated with other entrepreneurs and so forth I probably would have realized I could ease into it but I was really pretty young I didn't have any responsibilities I'm a father now but I would say probably I would have been looking to make like $3000 a
1: month would have been fine let's talk about the first time we met because you sort of opened up talking a lot about having listened to these shows and heard about these people and I guess you weren't going to come and then you got a scholarship. Is that accurate? Yeah, that would be fair to say. Yeah. The cost
0: from New Zealand to Austin would be, I mean, it's considerable. Alan Walton from spyguy.com had offered to cover the flight. And there's lots of other components to it. Like Henry Das was offering coaching. He was actually really instrumental in helping me with what would have been a huge deal. It didn't end up going through, but. That was no fault of his. He gave really, really valuable advice when I
1: needed it. Greg Gerber was giving a cash contribution. Greg Gerber's been on the show talking about cryptocurrency. And Alan Walton's been on the show as well, talking about his entrepreneurial story. Henry not on the show yet. Trying to think of who else was involved in this. Melanie Ginsberg was one. She offered a marketing audit.
0: And Ben McAdam, who sort of helps you understand your numbers, I've done a lot with Ben. He also was incredibly important with this big German deal that didn't end up happening. And then, of course, you guys gave the ticket to the actual conference, which honestly I hadn't even looked at the cost of the conference. I just did because I'll be going to Austin
1: again, and, and that like that's a significant. <laughs> it's a lot of money contribution as well. <laughs> yeah. What was it like rocking up to the hotel when you first got there? Were you nervous? No, I was excited. I kind of thought yeah, these are my people, you know. So
0: no I wasn't really worried. I was a bit nervous meeting you and Ian because it was that weird thing of, you know, somebody who you've maybe watched on TV or whatever and now there they are on the flesh and your brain kind of can't deal with it. <laughs> it's probably hilarious to you.
1: Oh man, you must have been just so disappointed like, oh god. No, it
0: was it was great. It was great meeting everybody and I can remember when I went to the first party, I remember Greg Gerber really kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to everybody. But there were a few people who who were like that, who were just going, look, you're one of us. We want you to meet everybody.
1: Was there something about it that defied your expectations?
0: Yeah. It's no coincidence that up until DC Austin, I was pretty happy going along, building my agency in New Zealand, looking across to Australia, which is you know geographically close and also culturally very similar. There's some minor differences. But close enough that you can kind of know that if you're doing something well in New Zealand, it'll almost certainly work in Australia. And what changed was I met a lot of people at d c Austin who were give or take a few years, similar mindset to me, very you know, I related to them in many ways, but in many cases, they had businesses that were ten, twenty or in some cases like a hundred times the size of mine. and it made me realize how big the possibilities are. since then. I've created an LLC based in Nashville, and I'm in the final stages of, I actually don't know what it is <laughs> called in the UK, but we're doing one in, based in London as well. And basically, you know, starting, we've already shot four of our artists in Nashville, we've shot videos with them, and we're creating their content. That's something that it wasn't even on my distant wish list of, say, even five years ago. I wouldn't have dreamed that I'd be starting an agency like a division based in the US. It was just too big and too scary. And yet now it's reality. And that's what I would say DC Austin absolutely caused that shift in mindset and essentially allowing myself to dream that big. So how are you judging yourself? I was thinking in terms of revenue to some extent, and also in terms of the size of my team. That was actually the main thought was, you know, how many people do I employ? Tell us about your business from that perspective. Well, it's a little bit strange because find a band is my main thing and by far my main revenue generator. But then I have this other business also, which is a marketplace website company. So the main website that we started is Aucklandweddings.co.nz. The easiest way to explain it would be it's an online wedding magazine. And the reason that I started this with a friend who's a wedding photographer is to create leads for my bands based in Auckland. I knew that you know weddings was a huge part of our market. I didn't want to keep spending money on wedding magazines. And I thought, if we just start this site that is like a heavy SEO focus on my best city that I'm selling into, we can kind of control the flow of information about wedding entertainment in that city. So that site actually employs like four full-timers right now, Whereas Finder Band is just myself. I have a full time salesperson and my dad does the accounts and that's it. And then we have lots of contractors. We have lots of video guys, photographers, and a sound engineer. But in terms of people that are turning up to work at 9 a.m. each day, it's just the three
1: of us. So you're a three piece and you didn't feel like that was, that could fill the room. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We needed a, a lead guitarist. Can we talk about your music a little bit? You founded a band called. Black River Drive. Right. Why not be a professional musician? What went wrong? How did that dream go off the rails? Tell us a little bit about starting that band. Is it similar to starting a business?
0: Yeah, it's honestly way harder. I always tell anybody who's interested to hear this, that with a business, you put in a dollar and you might get back $5, or you might, if you're lucky, get back $10. With a band, I feel like you put in $10 and you might get back $1, you know? It actually would be a lot about being in New Zealand. I feel like maybe if I was in the US doing the exact same thing, maybe it might have gone differently. The market is so small here. And then, you know, we started playing in a rock band at a time that when rock was really kind of a dying genre. And my feeling is it hasn't really come back. It's re- definitely not, you know, compared to, say, hip hop and dance and stuff, it's definitely not the flavor of the month. It is similar to a business in terms of you dedicate this energy to it and, you know, over time you create momentum and the creative aspect of it is similarly satisfying when you go from nothing to something. I find, particularly with online business, I love starting a website and making everything as good as it can possibly be and then optimizing it and, you know, just constantly refining it better and better. And as a songwriter, writing a song is a lot like that too. The hardest time is when you've got a blank page in front of you and then it's you know really satisfying to put it out into the world and hopefully people like it. What happened was I had crowdfunded, especially on the second, so we had two albums of 10 songs each. I wrote all of those songs, so 20 that made it onto the albums and let's say another 20. So a lot of songwriting.
1: This isn't some garage band, Sam. I mean, you've had number one singles on the rock chart in New Zealand. Am I accurate about that? Yeah.
0: I had that happen with two songs on the first album, and then the second one, we didn't get that sort of success, but the songs were still very well received. So, yeah, so it was funny because it was kind of like we got pretty close to taking the next step, which would be, you know, getting out of New Zealand with it. But a few things happened. One was that I became a dad the same month as my first album came out. But that at the time, I thought, oh, that's sort of going to put the kibosh on on this but it actually didn't. It actually, anybody who's a parent will know, it actually puts a fire under you and makes you work harder and focuses you. It can be harder to carve out time to be creative, but you value that time a lot more than you did when you didn't have a kid. So that wasn't a problem really. With the second album, we actually crowdfunded it through the New Zealand equivalent of Kickstarter, which is called Pledge Me. That was really hard. Anybody doing a Kickstarter will know It's way harder than it probably appears from the outside. So we did that and we were successful with it at the 11th hour, like really down to the wire. Got the money. Then we had to fly to Nashville and and do this album and it wasn't plain sailing. My favorite guitar, which I'd taken to Nashville, which is a Gibson Les Paul custom,
1: a beautiful guitar, opened the case up. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. These guitars are famous for their necks breaking. Is that what happened?
0: They sure are and that is what happened. So we had to hire a guitar and it that was a heartbreaking moment. But, you know, it was sort of like, okay, well, that's fine. You know, we'll get through it. And there's sort of a series of things like that, basically, that we ended up with something that we weren't that happy with. You couldn't
1: sing well anymore. What happened to your voice?
0: Yeah, that happened when we were on tour. I think all of the stress kind of built up to the point where, yeah, my voice just 100% blew out. I could barely talk, let alone sing. And our final gig, I'm sorry to say, we actually, we just played the master track. We were running some backing tracks along with the band playing live. So it was all live apart from like a few guitar tracks, but we basically turned the vocals back on from the recording. So the recording that was being played over the PA was just my studio recording. I just lip synced the whole thing because that was the only way we could finish the gig. And that was kind of like game over, no more band for the time being. And then it just kind of, it had been so hard maintaining the momentum up to that point. It really just kind of fell over everybody over the weeks following that essentially quit and um, this is after like six years together i think we'd all just had enough and my voice going was kind of like a line in the sand that's it
1: today's show is sponsored by hrefs i know many of you love and use hrefs and for those of you listening right now we got a special offer for you today so stick around if you don't know hrefs is the number one go-to tool for optimizing SEO traffic results because of their enormous backlinks index. I would have killed for something like this 10 years ago when I was getting started in SEO. But hrefs is a whole lot more sophisticated and comprehensive than that. It's actually a full suite of SEO tools, sort of like a Swiss army knife of SEO. So whether you need to run a technical site audit, do competitor research, or identify high-value keyword opportunities, hrefs does it all. So if you want to rank higher in Google and send your search traffic through the roof, go check out Ahrefs today. It's at www.ahrefs.com. They run a seven-day trial for just $7. So you could sign up for Ahrefs and see what this enormously comprehensive tool can do for just 7 bucks. And here's what's better. For one listener of today's episode, they're offering a free light annual account Worth nearly one thousand dollars. All you need to do is tweet at hrefs and at tropical MBA letting us know why you deserve to win. And big ups to hrefs for that generous offer and for sponsoring today's show. How would you compare the entrepreneurial life to the creative life or that which you experienced in Yahoo's building?
0: Well, I can only speak to my experience of it. And I feel like, you know, you read about these super executive daily schedules where they get up at 4 a.m. and they do an hour and a half of meditation before playing tennis against a pro and so forth. My life is not entirely like that. (laughs) If I had to kind of just say, well, this is the most important difference. I can remember having that Sunday night dread where you can't even enjoy the end of your weekend because you're starting your job that you absolutely hate the next day. I don't feel that anymore. Every day feels the same. It's actually, whether it's a Monday or a Saturday, feels the same. I just wake up every day. I make myself some coffee. I read and journal and do all that sort of stuff. And my day is my own. My business is something that I really love to do too in a field that I'm passionate about. But I feel like just that autonomy of running your own business, I could be selling just about anything and probably feel largely the same way. Just that freedom is worth it. What is it that you worry about with the business stuff? Is you got a family now. I used to worry. I can remember worrying that. So it's been ten years, almost exactly to the month, and in fact, a little over ten now. In the first few years, I didn't make very much money. We, we haven't really talked about this, but I kind of scraped by. So I went from a salary of sixty thousand New Zealand dollars, which would be say fifty ish US, something like that, down to twenty five thousand new zealand dollars for say probably a year or two first couple of years so a massive drop and i used to worry that it would always be like that and that i just couldn't build it bigger because there was a few years where the needle didn't move very much so to speak i didn't know how to build on past successes and and so forth why I don't know why. It's so strange now because now I feel like I could, you know, whenever I meet like a young entrepreneur, I go, these are the books you read and these are the podcasts to listen to and here's what you do and here's what you don't do. But I just didn't have somebody like I am now to say, this is what you do and this is what you don't. I just didn't have a person like that in my life. Like how were you screwing it up besides not having that person? In all of the classic ways. So, I mean, the first one would be I tried to do everything myself for a long time, including like sending out invoices and chasing up late payers. And I mean, I did everything. It was just me for, I would say, two or three years. And then my dad got involved doing the accounts as he was sort of semi-retired. And that was a game changer that all of a sudden, all of the money stuff in terms of getting it in the door and paying suppliers was taken care of. You sort of realised the power of delegating. But you asked, what do I worry about? Today, honestly, I don't worry about anything. In terms of business, I used to worry that it would all go away and that I would have to go back and get a job. My dad has always been sort of supportive of the entrepreneur thing, but my mum, like all mums I guess, was worried that I should go and get a real job, you know, and stop this online business lark. And then eventually it was like, look at how well it's going, mum. We're we're okay. We're fine. So yeah, I sort of it's taken almost this long to feel that it's not going to go away. It's going to get bigger. I'm not going to have to go back to my corporate gig. I'm not going to have to admit defeat. I sort of, I'm past a certain line, past a threshold where that is an option.
1: What do you tell those younger entrepreneurs who come to you and they're struggling to make it through 10 years or even two? Those first
0: few years, it is hard. You know, you guys have talked about the thousand day principle. I think that's really true. It's a grind and you kind of, there's kind of no way around it, there's no shortcut. There's no person you can hire and pay that all of a sudden it all just works for you. I think it's a rite of passage to have a few tough years. I guess, you know, there'd be people that would buck that trend, but I've known a lot of people that after two or three years, that's when they get that growth and life gets easier and they get smarter about it. What I would say to young entrepreneurs is hang in there. You kind of forge your own path and what people are willing to do and the way that they get to where they want to be, it's going to be unique to each person. You can't. Even if I told them how to do it, and they actually did do it based on what I did 10 years ago, they're obviously not going to get the same result now because the world's changed so much. So That's really interesting too, I think, that the business world and anything involved in the internet now is such a moving target. It's a beautiful thing, actually, because you can be up against an incumbent and you can smash them because you're young and you're aware of new technology, whereas they will invariably be really used to the status quo as it was. It happened to me with a lot of agencies actually in New Zealand where there was a lot of established players and I was able to, for example, get to number one in Google for all of my keywords because they didn't know what SEO was,
1: let alone they were doing it. It's interesting you mentioned because you stuck with this business that wasn't showing you these really positive signs in the first few years. You know, I came really close to quitting actually after about
0: five years. I got really close. I realized that my skills, I'm a a sort of online business jack of all trades, master of none, would be fair to say. And I realized I could go and work in, say, SEO or PPC or something and probably be on high five figures or six figures or something. I kept sort of saying, you know, I'll just do one more year. And if this happens, then I'll stick it out. And I guess I must have things turned around when they did. And I started to see when I looked at the yearly growth, I could see that we were sort of potentially it was going to start getting a lot better. And it did.
1: It's interesting that you didn't jump ship and try a side project or that you just stuck with the same vehicle, essentially, which I think is really underrated.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think unless you have something that is just absolutely 100% not working, there were times where I felt like I did have that. I just felt like If I can get this right, if I can pull the right lever, this will change. And in fact, I did find that lever. What was it? What it was, was for the first few years, you know, the artists would give me their, they would like log into the website and upload their photos and upload their videos, which would often be at best like a crappy iPhone friend at the back of the bar, shooting the band, playing distorted, horrible video. And this is at a time where video isn't like it is now, where everybody's creating a video for everything. So I had a lot of bands where they had no videos and we'd just have mp3s that they had generated and then, and then a handful that would have videos. And I must have noticed that some bands were getting a lot of gigs who had some video of any kind of quality. And what I realized was if I put together a team of professionals and create really good videos, really good audio for those videos, and then really great live photography, I think what will happen is those bands will get all the work, that they will kind of take the guesswork out of it for a client. So rather than me just saying, this is a really good band, you're going to have a really great night with these guys. It's like, here are 10 videos of this band playing, shot with six different angles in a beautiful space. And I did that with a band. And, you know, the agency paid for all of it. It was a significant outlay. I think it was probably like $6,000, something like that, all up. And sure enough, it didn't happen immediately, but within a few months, this artist started getting far more bookings than everybody else. And so I did it again, and then I did it again, and that was the clincher. So now we have about 20 bands that we've done around about 10 videos each for. And I mean, they by far get the lion's share of the... I have 100 bands in New Zealand on the agency, but these 20 do 95% of the bookings. Interesting. So you don't charge for that? I never did. In fact I've never done a signed contract with an artist. It's all gentlemen's agreements because I didn't want them to be scared off that this money man was saying, Hey, I'm gonna pay for everything, it's gonna be great. I said to them at the outset, I will pay for everything. If you guys are unhappy at any point, you can just tell me and we'll take the videos down. You know, the agency will keep all of the content so you don't ever get the content to go off and take your own bookings. But There's no hard feelings and you're not locked into anything because I just wanted to remove any fear from the conversation.
1: Now, before we get back to the interview, I wanted to give you a little bit of the backstory to this interview that I mentioned at the beginning. So when we emailed Sam to ask him to come on the show, his first reaction was, well, we're in the very early stages of trying to expand into the US and UK, so why not check back with me in six months? And this is a very common thing that we hear from people that we're reaching out to about the show. Entrepreneurs are always saying, well, I'm just, I'm working on this big thing. Like call me when it's done kind of thing. But in all respect to him, we said, hey, we want to hear from you now about what you hope might happen and then check back in with you and see how it works up down the line. And thankfully for us today, he was up for that. We're at the very beginning of taking the agency into the
0: U.S. and. You know, there are existing players doing something similar to what I do in the US already, but there is a lack of quality control. The big incumbent players essentially take any artist that wants to be on their site, and their revenue model is a bit more all care and no responsibility. They don't really have any obligation to their artists, they don't have any skin in the game with their artists. And that's a pretty big key difference with me that I do, not with all of them, but with the ones where. They want me to help them, and I think they have you know the right criteria for clients who want to book them, so you know the goal would be over the next six months to a year to get established in Nashville and then there are other cities that my counterpart in Nashville, whose name is Vanessa, she's a touring musician and a good friend of mine from New Zealand who has a green card and now lives in in Nashville and has for the last sort of three or four years she and I are trying to put together something like. 50 bands in Nashville, and then a handful in surrounding cities and kind of go from there. I mean, the longer term plan is we would demonstrate that we have a working model to investors. And then I think we would at least go down the path of exploring getting VC. You know, we want to build the band website for the world, honestly.
1: Sam, one of the things I say on the show is that like nine out of 10 people like you wouldn't bother doing what you're doing right now or what you just did. Why come on the show and share your strategic plan for your business? Why bother? Yeah,
0: I did have reservations about it. And I was like, well, what should I talk about? What should I not talk about? I found over the years of, you know, when I've talked to people about ideas and and maybe shared more than I felt comfortable with, nobody ever takes your idea and runs with it and sort of Zuckerberg's you, you know? Okay, he did. <laughs> but most people don't. Most people just, I'm doing a pretty specific thing and... I feel like I hope, you know, my story inspires people outside of my field to do their thing in their field. I've learned so much from Tropical MBA and been so inspired by real conversations with
1: real entrepreneurs is the reason. The last question I have is maybe the hardest one, which is to say, is there anything you want to say to the people on the other side of the podcast, so to speak? What sort of general ideas would you share with them?
0: I guess in terms of what I wish I had done. I wish I had found somebody or several people who were where I wanted to be 10 years into the future and kind of made myself their apprentice. The Robert Green book, Mastery, is all about a series of people that have had massive success in whatever their pursuit is. And invariably, they apprentice themselves to the experts in their field and sort of spend a few years learning the ropes. I didn't do that. I did it the School of Hard Knocks way. And it's really stupid. It's not a good way to do it. So I would do that. Definitely seek out experts. I guess this is another one. Don't worry about how much you're earning. Worry about what you're learning and figuring out your 80-20 and where you should be focusing your energy. Whatever your business type is, there's going to be 20% of what you do is going to generate 80% of your income if you can keep sorting the wheat from the chaff and cutting out anything that you find you're spending a lot of time on that isn't giving you results and also focusing on those things that you do a bit and it actually massively pays off, I think that's something I try and do. Be aware that you only have so many hours in the day and so much energy to give. The book, Willpower, is a really good one about this. There's two books, I think, actually, I want to mention, The Power of Habit, And willpower. And they're almost kind of like complementary, like companion books to each other. I coincidentally read one and then the other, and they really relate. Where basically, you know, your life is a series of habits. And if you set your habits up so that certain things happen, for example, you know, if one of your habits is you go to the gym every day, you're going to get fit. And you can do the equivalent of that in your business, where you do certain things each day, you take certain actions that create over time momentum and add up to a big result. So you want to try and identify your good and bad habits. What are your good business habits? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) A really important one is we always keep in touch with past customers. So your best customer is the one that's already bought from you. Over the 10 years, we've built up our corporates in particular, where these are people that typically spend money multiple times a year on their events. And In some ways, all we have to do is do a good job for them one year and then touch base with them, say, six or nine months later and say, do you want us to help you with that again this year? And a certain percentage of them are going to say yes. Sometimes over and over and over, we've had people that we might have worked with for six or seven years,
1: and that creates growth. Sam, let me ask you a really shitty question. Let's say your income is $500,000 a year and it's capped out that's what you're going to make every year. And you have two options. One is you can run your business. And the other is that you can stoke up the old band and be the leader of the band again. What would you choose and why? So do I get to
0: keep the 500,000 if I've got the band as well? Yeah. That sounds like a good deal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I always wondered about touring and like playing the same songs. I was watching the Chili Peppers last night and they were playing this acoustic gig and They're playing these songs that are 25 years old. You hear Anthony Kiedis launch into, I know, I know it's true, for the 1500th time. I wonder what that's like for him. You don't talk about it much, but you were a musician before at some point, right? Yeah. What'd you do with it? I didn't get as far as you. I I didn't have as much talent. I bailed from the band because I felt like people weren't willing to take it seriously. Looking back at it, I was at a moment where I sort of saw the Matrix and I had discovered entrepreneurship at the same time. So I was at this moment where I was like looking at the top ten charts and like trying to deconstruct like what these artists were doing. And the other guys in the band like were super pumped to have a hundred people in the room, you know? And I was like, guys, like we have to sit down and like deconstruct these melodies because that's what's getting these people I was sort of willing to do that, but I didn't have comrades. And then I started reading Seth Godin books, and I was like, now nah, this is the Matrix. So, one realization I had when I was touring around with the band, and actually, Vanessa, my friend in
0: Nashville, the reason she said that she wanted to partner up with me and be my sort of US manager or whatever, you know, she's my business partner there now. She is at the essentially the top level where she's touring around with artists, sometimes pretty established artists as a sort of gun-for-hire bass player. She's like an endorsed Fender artist.
1: And Fender is a brand of guitars.
0: Yeah, Fender is like one of the big brands. So it's a big deal that she's an endorsed artist. I'm just saying that because it sort of indicates how far down the track she is as a musician. She's been touring around on these buses and often with guys in their 40s, their 50s, and I guess sometimes older, and realize like, this is it. This is as far as it goes. And you have to, in order to get paid your money, and it's not a Particularly large amount of money. You got to get on this bus and drive for eight hours or whatever, do the show. And yes, for that hour, it's amazing. And then you have 23 hours until the next amazing hour. And she realized that that's my life if I don't make a change. You know, she kind of had the same moment that I had at Yahoo, but as a successful Nashville based musician. The thing about entrepreneurship is you don't get rewarded for each hour that you turn up. Even a surgeon or a high end lawyer, they still have to do the job, they still have to do the work and get paid for the hour. An entrepreneur doesn't. Sam,
1: thank you for coming on the TNBA podcast, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, enormous thanks to Sam Brown from Find a Band. We're really looking forward to catching up with Sam and see what's happened with his expansion into the US and UK. And for me, it was wonderful To hear the backstory of where he's come from. To Sam and to future podcast guests, whether you've got the results or not, your journey itself is interesting. What we're doing here, trying to grow businesses, is so, so very hard. And there's no one way to do it. So even getting out there and failing is a win. And we respect and support those who are willing to share those parts of their journey here at the TMBA show. Big ups to Sam. We are going to post. The show notes to this one at TropicalMBA.com slash Sam Brown. That's Brown with an E. But for those of you who love music and especially guitars, I use this chance to talk to Sam as a chance to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is music and guitars. So we're going to roll some of that conversation after the music. So a bit of a conversation of Sam and I riffing about our favorite guitars and stuff after the exit music. And for the rest of you, we will see you next week, Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I just wanted to set the stage for you music fans out there, excuse my clunky metaphor, for this bonus track, and here's the short version. Basically, at the end of the interview, Sam and I talked a little bit about his life as a musician and about guitars and music and things and long time listeners will know that I was in a band at one time, and I absolutely loved it, but uh, of course, it didn't work out for me. Sam got a lot further. He actually opened up once for Bon Jovi in uh, New Zealand. I basically played my guitar to a bunch of drunken hipsters in uptown San Diego, so I thought it would be cool to talk to him about music, and i uh, I opened up by sharing with him. And I don't know if you guys know, but at Tropical MBA we have this very old blog post that ranks for how to play guitar. And in some sort of weird way, it's kind of helped keep me in the music scene a little bit and also helped to finance this podcast, quite frankly. I rank number four in the world for how to play guitar right now. And I was thinking about how should I monetize this website? Wow. Yeah, so I wrote this I forget what was happening, like I went through this super productivity thing in 2009. And I was just being creative. And I thought, here's something people don't understand, is that playing the guitar has nothing to do with musical talent whatsoever. Playing the guitar is about contorting your fingers in weird ways that feels unnatural. And once you can contort your fingers, you can play the guitar. It's just that simple. It's not like the piano where you really have to like understand a little bit something about music to play the piano. Kind of, although you could hack that too. The guitar it really is a shape instrument. It's an athletic instrument. Mm. And that athleticism can develop over 10 hours. So that was the point of the piece. And then I wrote this big, long thing where I demonstrated to people how you can basically play in the key of G. And then once you, as you know, if you have armed with a capo, which is a thing that like, who cares what a capo is? The point is, is that <laughs> if you have this thing plus these chords that I teach you in 10 hours, you can basically play any song that's ever been written. I mean, 95% of songs. Yeah, that's true. So I posted this and I think people more or less agreed with me. And so Google agreed with me at least. And so now I'm number four in Google. And I make money off of this by telling people my favorite guitars. So my question for you is what are your favorite guitars and what would you advise young people or people that are getting started? Strangely enough, a lot of people write me and say, this is a weird email that I get a lot. My dad died and he was like really into guitars and he left me with this Gibson Les Paul or whatever and I want to learn how to play it like to honor him or just I'm going to connect with him in that way. Found your post and I'm like, dude, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah. So what guitars are you into and what do you suggest to other aspiring guitar players? Uh, This took a
0: weird turn. (laughs) Actually, guitars are like my guitars and pedals and amps, but lately guitars... Uh, my thing that my cash goes into for no reason.
1: Are they good investments?
0: Arguably, I mean, I buy them secondhand, so they don't they don't lose value. But they don't. I'm yet to have one. How many do you have? I think I've got about eight, maybe something like that. That's reasonable. Yeah, I guess it is. I've got these '70s Yamahas that I really love. So the story that I heard is that Yamaha in the '70s were trying to make American guitars better than America. So my Yamaha that I have is a 335 copy. So it's a Gibson copy, but I've had the same thing, a real Gibson, and I didn't like it anywhere as much as I like this Yamaha. So, And I had a really fancy Gibson. I had it really briefly. And so a 335, describe how people might know about that guitar. Probably the most famous one currently is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters plays something that is the body of a 335. With guitars, I keep trying to find the Holy Grail one that sits really well in the band mix and i always play with these great guitar i'm not a great guitar player but i play with these guys that are really good and whatever they played i'd be like oh i should get what you know (laughs) what joe's playing or what andy's playing and then i'll be then i'll be good and i'm not it doesn't make any difference but i keep buying them
1: if you could have one guitar what's the what's the one i always go back to les
0: paul's so the big slab of wood like slash it's probably the most famous that i can think of in this moment at least They're big, they're heavy, they're like the sound
1: of rock. It was developed for jazz musicians and it was developed like pre-distortion, I guess, you know, when you distort the tone and you turn it into a rock instrument. The thing about guitars that that amazes me is how they've sort of cut through history. Like you developed this design in like 1951 or whatever, and it's still the same shit we're playing today. And in fact, like literally nothing has needed to change. And- it's when changes occur that the bad things start happening. So people try to go back to do these originals. And they were developed before modern effects pedals, before modern amplification. Yet, what Guns N' Roses, what the Rolling Stones... I always think of Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Somehow, by the way, Led Zeppelin is still the greatest band of all time. Like How <laughs> yeah. How did like not somebody our age study Led Zeppelin and be like, oh, I can do better than Led Zeppelin? No. This is the problem with rock music. We can't figure out how to get better. I can't think of anything,
0: especially as far as guitars goes, as far as like an appliance or something that you like a tool. I can't think of anything else where that would be true that they got it right 70 years ago and haven't improved on it. And even Gibson and Fender can't. They can't make a better version
1: of these guitars, try as they might. It's strange. Mine is a Telecaster. This is my favorite. That's a great guitar. I just love the way it feels and sounds like it's like almost one of the most beautiful objects I've ever seen. I just think they're, they're amazing.
0: When I was in Nashville, we got to go to Groon Guitars. You know about Groon? No. It's like a world famous guitar shop, even the main floor. So you go in the front door and there's the main shop, which is fine. Like the, the guitars are great, but they've got this elevator that you can only get into with like a, you know, special key. And upstairs is where you go if you're like John Mayer or whatever, and you go and buy, you know, you can buy 50s, Fenders and Gibsons and stuff. And they told us, you know, I think I'd read online, like, you're not going to get up there, you know. And I just went up to the shop assistant. I said, hey, man, we're from New Zealand. We're definitely not going to buy one, but we've come a really long way. Do you think we could go upstairs? And he was like, yeah, come on. And so we went up there and I played a no caster, you know, the original Fender. I think it's what is it like a fifty one, and yeah, it was like a religious experience. I got to play that. I got to play a original Black Beauty, and I hardly played them because I just sort of had them in my hands, and I was like, it was like hallowed ground, you know. Just sat and enjoyed the that
1: this thing was in in my proximity. Can you imagine like in the sporting world, like there are certain years of telecasters of les pauls everybody knows the years like it's a 1963 and that was before they fucked it up doing this thing yeah can you imagine like doing this in any other pursuit where you're like i'm gonna get my hands on this 1963 and i'm gonna play the shit out of it in front of twenty thousand people and like this is what's gonna go on the record and like i need that 63 like can you imagine doing this in like the cycling world like i gotta get a 1963 bicycle and we can ride it up the side of a mountain or doing it in any other pursuit it's very strange that they still work that they actually exceed what you can I think it's fascinating it is it's unique I'm sure